1 Corinthians chapter 15 is, the whole Bible is powerful. Um, this is one of the most powerful chapters in all of Scripture. Deals with the resurrection. Deals with so much. When we talk about the resurrection, we're not just talking about one day your physical body is going to come back to life. The resurrection is so much more than that. And so we're going to begin talking about um, this chapter today. And uh, we'll take our time as we go through it and try to glean from it everything that we can that, that, uh, that God has put there for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we open your word today and as we get ready to read your word, God, I pray that your word, your living word, would have entrance into our hearts and entrance into our minds. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that you would indeed change us and transform us, renew our mind according to your word and according to your spirit, that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, we ask that you would do this today for your glory and for the building up of the church, that we would be a light and a witness to Christ in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read uh, beginning in chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Let me read to you um, down to about verse 19. Just read with me in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, And after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 
Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Okay, we're going to stop there and work our way up to that point. There's much to say. There's much more to say uh, even after today. So let's go back. Let's look at verse 1. Let's look at verse 1 and verse 2 specifically. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let me read verse 2 to you from Philip's translation. He says, And which, by which, if you remain faithful to the message I gave you, Your salvation is being worked out unless, of course, your faith had no meaning behind it at all. Unless you believed in vain. So what I want you to understand, what you unless you believed in vain, that is not saying one day you're going to get to the end of your life, you've trusted in Christ all your life, you've believed and hoped on Christ all your life, you're going to get to the end of your life and you're going to find out it was all for nothing. This is, we, we just don't know for sure till we get to the end of our life whether our, our belief, whether our faith is in vain or not. I guess we'll have to just get there and find out. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying you don't have assurance of your salvation. Paul is not saying you don't have assurance in your faith. Paul is not saying it's all a big gamble. Let's see what happens one day when we get there. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is, if you hold fast to your faith, you're holding fast to the faith, your belief, your trust in Christ is your salvation. It is your salvation. It is you being saved. So we're saved and we're being saved. My salvation is not just something that's completed. It's something that's ongoing. It's kind of like a child that's born. That child is born, but their life didn't just begin and end right there at birth. Okay, well, he's he's here. They've got life. No, their life is ongoing. They are growing up. They are maturing. They are continuing on. They're living. This is the way I want you to understand your salvation. You are saved, but you are being saved. God is doing a continuous work in you. And when you get to the end of your life here on this earth, that work is going to be seen. It's going to be known. If you somewhere during the course of your life's journey decide Jesus isn't worth it all, and you just say, to heck with this Jesus stuff, I'm out of here. What that means is there was nothing behind your faith to begin with. There was nothing behind your belief to begin with. And this is what I want you to understand, church. Faith in Christ. Christ is not an experiment that we try. I've had countless people come to me And say, you know, I tried Jesus, but he just didn't work. (laughs) No. Jesus is not someone or something that you try that works or doesn't work. 
If Christ is just an experiment you're willing to try because you're so desperate and you have no other option, I'm going to tell you right now, you're in danger of discovering one day that there is nothing behind your faith. Your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain if Jesus is just an experiment that you're willing to try to see how it all works out. Because that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is not the experiment of the world. He is the Lord, the King of the world, of the universe, of all creation. He is the Lord of lords. And so Paul is giving them assurance of their salvation, not casting doubt on it. So the gospel declared to you, the gospel, he says, that I declared to you is the gospel which I preach to you. The gospel is that which must be preached. If I get up here on Sunday morning and I preach anything to you other than the gospel, you should fire me, you should run me out of this place or any other pastor or any other preacher because we've not been called as pastors, as ministers to preach or to teach any other message except the message of the gospel. Because there is no other message by which you can be saved. There is no other message that can give you hope except the gospel. If you want self-help, go to Barnes and Nobles and buy you a self-help book. If that's what you want, the church is not the place you should be getting that. The church, because the only help that you can truly receive is not from yourself. The only help you can truly receive is from God. And it came in the form of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for you. Who was buried for you. Who was raised for you. Who wants you to die and be buried so that you can be raised in his life. He's not interested in making your life better. He's interested in killing you. Yes, that's right. God wants to take your life, crucify it, so that he can raise you up in his own life. We have taught and preached and manipulated people into believing that if you'll just follow the rules of this book, if you'll just see this as your basic instructions before leaving earth, there's lots of good life principles here. You can have your best life yet. You can have your most successful life, your, your most prosperous life. You can have all of these things. And we'll become like that man Jesus talked about who has gained the whole world but has lost his soul. Now, I'm going to tell you what, when you get to the end of your life, if you happen to gain the whole world but you have lost your soul, you're going to discover real quick the world wasn't worth it. The world is not worth your soul. The only message that can save your soul is the gospel. Paul said, this is the message I declare to you. This is the message that I must preach to you. This is the message that you must receive. This is the gospel in which you must stand. This is the word by which you are saved. This is the word that you need to hold fast to. And if you hold fast to this word... 
you have assurance of your salvation. If you abort in midstream, it means there was never anything behind your faith to begin with. You believed in vain. Because Jesus was nothing more than just an experiment for you. And the experiment didn't work out. God did not send his son to die for us so that we could bring him into our life and make our life better. I'm going to say that again. God did not send his son to die for you or for me so that you or I could bring Jesus into our life and make our life better. That seems to be the message that a lot of people are preaching today. If you'll just bring Jesus into your life, your life will be better. God's not interested in you bringing Jesus into your life. I want you to hear me very clearly, church. Jesus is not interested in becoming a part of your life. Because you have nothing you can add to Jesus. I have nothing I can add to Jesus. God did not send his son so that his son could become a part of our life. God sent his son so that we could be crucified with him die with him, be buried with him, so that we could now be raised and joined to his life. There is a huge difference between Jesus becoming part of your life and Jesus becoming your life. Did you hear me? There is a huge difference between Jesus becoming part of your life versus the gospel, which is... Jesus becomes your life. Is Jesus your life? It's an important question. I'm asking you this question today. Is Jesus your life? Or is Jesus someone you're trying to bring into your life to make your life better? Got lots of problems. Maybe if I bring Jesus into my life, my problems will get better. Yeah, I've, got, I've, got, I've got such need in my life. Maybe if I bring Jesus into my life, he'll begin to meet my needs. That's not the gospel. That's not the message Paul preached to the Corinthians. It's not the message that Paul received. It's not the message he delivered. It must not be the message we preach today in 21st century America as much as we are tempted to preach it because this is what the gospel has become. But it's not the gospel. There is a holding fast to the gospel. There is a holding fast to Christ, not not to become saved, but because we are saved. And if we are saved, we will hold fast. If we're not saved, we're not going to hold fast. We're just not. And our belief is empty. So the assurance of our salvation is seen in holding fast to Christ. Is Christ your life? I'm going to tell you right now, if Christ is your life, you will never do anything but hold fast to him. If Christ is your life... Christ is not someone or something you can let go of. You don't have the power to do that. If Christ is an experiment, if Christ is someone that you're going to bring into your life and see how it works out, yes, you can let go of him. You can, 
cast him aside, you can do that. Salvation is not you bringing Jesus into your life. Salvation is Jesus becoming your life. The Bible doesn't say, Paul didn't write these words in in 2 Corinthians. He penned these words. He says, I am not my own. I belong to Jesus. That shows that Jesus is someone who has taken hold of me. He owns me. Does Jesus own you? Does he own you? Is he your life? Verse 3. So the gospel is declared to you. What is the gospel? The gospel is Christ. The gospel is the living word of God. Jesus is the gospel. He must be preached. He must be received. We must stand in him. It's, it's Jesus who saves us. It is Jesus to which we hold fast because he is our life. Verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present day, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. The gospel delivered and received I want you to look at verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. What was it that Paul delivered that he had received? Verses 3 through 5, at the very least, those three verses, record for us the earliest Christian creed that's known. So this was a creed of the church. Perhaps as early as A.D. 33, somewhere to A.D. 38. Just a few short years after the crucifixion of Jesus, this became the creed of the church. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he rose again the third day and he was seen by Cephas and the twelve. Paul goes on to write, he was seen by the 500. He was seen by James and then by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me. Those words, two words in that verse, verse 3, where Paul says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. The gospel delivered and received. That word delivered and that word received is a Greek translation of a technical a rabbinic, a Hebrew term. It speaks of that which was passed down. Paul is saying, this tradition was passed down to me. I received it. I am declaring it to you. Why am I telling you today Christ was crucified for us? Christ was buried. 
Christ rose again the third day. He was seen by Cephas and the twelve, by the five hundred. How can I say that to you? I can say that to you because someone passed it down to me. And someone has passed it down to you. It is our creed as Christians. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. What I deliver to you, I have received. This is what I received. This is what I was told. This is what I witnessed. This is what I know. Christ was crucified. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. And that he was seen by Cephas and the twelve. You don't see it, but that, that phrase, and that, and that, and that, it's like having quotation marks there. Paul is quoting this creed. What is Paul saying? The same thing I'm saying to you today. Paul did not come to me. He said, I'm not coming to you with a message that originated with me. I didn't pull this story about Jesus out of the thin air and declare it to you. What I am declaring to you, what I am delivering to you, I also received. This is what I received, that Christ was crucified for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose the third day and that he was seen by Peter and the other apostles. And by over 500 people, most of them alive still today. And by James and the rest of the apostles. And lastly, he was seen by me. Paul says, I'm not telling you something that I made up. It didn't originate with me. I'm telling you what I know according to the scriptures. I'm telling you what I know according to the eyewitnesses. And even I, the last one, am an eyewitness. And I'm telling you today... What I know according to the scripture, I'm telling you today what I know according to those eyewitnesses recorded in our scripture today. And I tell you what I know as a witness myself, not that I have physically seen Jesus, but I know what Jesus has done for me. I know that he saved me. I know that Jesus is not just someone I brought into my life to see if my life could become better. Jesus has become my life. Not by any merit of my own. I don't deserve it. I got news. You don't deserve it either. It is by grace through faith. It is by grace that Jesus has become our life. If Christ is your life today, it is by grace that he is your life today. Paul said, I declare this message to you. This same message that I received. That Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. He was seen. And he is known. The gospel of Christ is today still passed down according to the scriptures and according to the witnesses. Are you a witness? Are you a witness of Christ? Can you say with Paul, that which I have received, I deliver to you. The gospel, the only word by which we have hope to stand. Verse 9. For, <clears throat> for I am the least of the apostles. 
So he says, last of all, he was seen by me. As one born out of due time, verse 9, for I am the last of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, listen to this church, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Every one of us here today can say that same thing. Paul said, I have a past. I was the least worthy. I was the least likely. I was the guy that was going out and persecuting the church. I was doing everything within my power to stamp out Christianity in the name of Christ. That's who I am, Paul says. That's who I am. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am the last of the apostles. I am now a man declaring to you the gospel of Christ. I am a man declaring to you the very name that I was just a few short years ago trying to stamp out. I am now declaring to you that name. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen, we all have a past. Every one of us. I don't care if you were the best little boy or the best little girl, if you're the all-American guy and the all-American girl, and you can't think of anything that you've ever done that's worse than, you know... All have fallen short of the glory of God. None seek after God. Their throats are like an open pit, an open tomb. They have all gone astray, Romans 3. We can't trust in our moralism because moralism gets us nothing. Or you might say, Pastor Jeff, if you knew my past, if you knew the things that I've done, you probably would not even let me walk in this church. And what I'm telling you is your past makes no difference whatsoever. Because whatever your past may be, it is only and only by God's grace that you are what you are. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. God's grace transcends. It transcends our past. It transcends our present. It transcends our future. His grace is sufficient for all. And we are what we are by the grace of God.
We are what we are by the grace of God because grace transcends. God's grace empowers. It empowers us to labor more abundantly, yet not us, but the grace of God which is with us. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our labors. Paul wasn't working abundantly more than all the rest because he was trying to prove himself to God. That's that's the wrong way to understand this. See, that's what our human nature wants to do. Our human nature says, man, I was such a horrible person. I'm going to work really extra hard for God so so I can get extra favor because I need extra favor from God because I was an extra bad person. No, it doesn't work that way. That's not why Paul said he he labored abundantly more than all the rest. He wasn't trying to prove something. He wasn't trying to earn anything. Paul had a revelation of God's grace. It was the revelation of God's grace that caused Paul to labor even more abundantly. It is the revelation of God's grace that should not give us an attitude that says, I can go out and live any way I want to live, commit any sin I want to commit, and God's got to forgive me because that's grace. No. Grace does just the opposite. When we get a revelation of God's grace, we're going to be like Paul. It's going to make us want to labor even more abundantly, not because we're trying to earn something, not because we're trying to gain something, but because we've got a revelation that God has given us everything in Christ. God has withheld nothing from us. What are we going to withhold from God? Why would we withhold anything from God? That's why when you get to the New Testament, the standard of giving, the standard of everything, just it goes out of sight. We're not limited to 10%. The New Testament standard is God, God owns everything. We owe God everything because God gave everything. We see this with the widow when Jesus is at, there at the temple in the treasury and she drops her little half penny in. And Jesus stops the procession and he says, Whoa, this woman has just given more than everyone here. Though it was just just a penny. It, It wasn't the amount. It was the fact that she literally gave all that she had. What is it that Christ wants from us? He wants all that we have. That's what he wants. I'm telling you right now, he wants all that you have. He wants all that you have. He doesn't want it because he needs it, because he's poor, because he's lonely. That's not why. He wants all that you have because he wants you to gain a revelation that he has given you all that he has. That he has not withheld anything from you. And if he, the God of creation, the Lord of glory, has not withheld anything from us, he gave us the most dear, the most valuable thing he could ever possibly give us. Oh, we want to think we need money, we need riches, we need material things. If God would just bless me with the lottery, if God would just make me rich, boy, I could do such wonderful things with him. Well, what are you waiting on? What's money going to give you that... You can't already do. Give him what you have now. Give him all that you are right now. 
Give him your life to the uttermost because he has given you his life to the uttermost. This is what I want you to understand. Jesus is not someone you bring into your life. God has given you the life of his son. God did not withhold the life of his son. God has given to you the very life of his son. The most precious thing God ever possessed, he gave up for you. Not when you were a good guy or a good girl. Not when you were trying really hard to serve him and worship him. The Bible says when you were his most hostile and opposing enemy, Christ died for you. Parents, I want you to think about your children. I want you to think about the most despicable, hostile, vile person you can think of. Would you give your child up for someone like that? No, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't even think about doing it. Yet we don't understand that's exactly what God did for us. That's exactly what God did for us. He did not withhold even his own son for us. This is why the Bible calls it good news. If I deserve it, if I can work for it, if I can merit it, it's not good news. It's not grace. It's not a gift. If Jesus is just someone I can stick in my pocket and take with me whenever I want, and leave him at home whenever I want, you know, we used to do that skit. I'm going to leave Jesus in the car, and I'm going to go in here to this. No, it doesn't work that way. You don't leave Jesus anywhere. Either you're bound to him in life, or you are not. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if you're not bound to him in life, if he's not your life, you're in, you're in big trouble. Because you have no hope apart from him. None. So God's grace transcends our past, our present, our future. It empowers us to labor more abundantly because God's grace gives us a revelation of what God has given to us. That should motivate us to give of ourselves to the uttermost for the glory of God. God's grace enlightens. It enlightens us to preach. It enlightens us to believe, to trust. It enlightens us so that we can willfully and cheerfully give ourselves to Him in every way possible. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So Paul has talked about the gospel of God. He's talked about the grace of God. Now we get to verse 12. Let's read verses 12 through 19. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised us up whom he did not raise up. And if in fact the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. 
and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, Paul says our preaching is empty, your faith is empty, we're found false witnesses. If Christ is not risen, he says your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep have perished. There is no hope. They're gone. They're done with. If there is no resurrection. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. We are of all men the most pitiable. There is no gospel without the resurrection. Really there is no grace without the resurrection. Why, why would God do all that he's done, give his son to die on a cross for us, if, if, if all we have is in this life? We're going to live, man, if, we, if we eat all organic, non-GMO foods, and we exercise regularly, and we drink pure water, you know, let's say, you know, with modern technology, man, we can, we can get out 120 healthy years. Boy, that'd be something, right? Who cares? Who cares if the only hope we have is in this life? Why did Jesus bother even coming from heaven if, if all we have hope for is just however long we can live on this earth? That doesn't even make sense. Paul says, not only does it make sense, man, if, if that's our true state, we are to be pitied uh, more than any men on earth. The resurrection of Christ is central to everything. I want you to understand this, church. I want you to understand how central the resurrection is to everything that we're talking about. But I want you to understand also that the resurrection is not just one day this body's going to raise from the grave. The hope of resurrection begins long before our physical bodies are ever going to be physically raised from a physical grave. I want you to understand this. I want you to turn over with me to Philippians chapter 3. Because when Paul begins this section of his letter, and he starts talking about the gospel declared, the gospel preached, the gospel he received, Paul's under no illusion here. These aren't isolated, disconnected subjects in this letter. The resurrection is central to all of this. The resurrection is central to the gospel. The gospel is is central to the resurrection. I mean, you, you can't separate them. There is no good news if there's no resurrection. Philippians chapter 3. Now... Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was written probably in the mid-50s, somewhere around 55 A.D., early to mid-50s. When Paul writes his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes his letter to the Philippians somewhere in the the mid-60s. So let's just say it, it could be 10 years later, Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi. 
And when Paul writes his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's in prison. And Paul, I don't believe, is under any illusion. I think if Paul doesn't know that he's going to die in Rome, he knows that the chances are very, very good that he'll never leave Rome. He'll never leave that prison. Now, this is the Apostle Paul that Jesus Christ appeared to personally on the road to Damascus. I don't know if any of you have ever had that kind of experience. I haven't. I I can't even begin to imagine what an experience like that might be like. Paul went on from that experience, from his conversion, his transformation, to pin most of our New Testament. This is a man who had a revelation of Christ that that probably few people in human history will, will ever have one to rival. Philippians chapter 3. Let's, let's begin. Um, hmm. Let's just begin in the first, first verse. Paul's writing this. He's warning these believers not to put their confidence in the flesh. Not to put their confidence in their works. Not to put their confidence in their moral goodness. Not to put their confidence in religious traditions. The Jews were coming in and they were telling the Christians, these Gentile believers, who weren't Jews, basically you need to conform to Judaism. You need to conform to this religious tradition to really be saved, to really have assurance. Philippians chapter 3, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Not very politically correct there. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. Here's another way that we would under, we don't, maybe don't understand this today, but here's what Paul is saying. We are Israel who worship God in the spirit. We are the Jews who worship God in the Spirit. We are God's chosen people who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else think he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So Paul's talking about himself. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, Do you see that at one time, all of those things were gained to to Paul? Paul put his confidence in those very things. He boasted 
in the very fact of who he was. He says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. I'm going to be honest with you, church. I can't identify with what Paul is talking about right there. Because when Paul says that I, I have suffered the loss of all things, Paul literally suffered the loss of all things. I believe Paul lost his family. He lost his home. He lost his uh, career. <laughs> uh, he was a tent builder, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a lawyer. He was a man of the law. He was a teacher of the law. He, he was in the hierarchy. He had climbed the ladder. He had all the connections. He was set. And he lost it all. He lost it all. I find myself, I'm just going to be honest with you, I find myself trying to hold on as much as I can. Trying not to lose. Taking the scripture and trying to justify the fact that I'm trying to hold on as much as I can. And there's a conflict here. There's a conflict. I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. Do you know today that you don't have your own righteousness? which is from the law, but the righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. See, that's the righteousness you have. The righteousness you have is from God by faith in Jesus Christ. He is your righteousness. Here's what I want you to focus on. Verse 10. Ten years after he pens his first letter to the Corinthians. After his road to Damascus experience. After all that Paul has done. After all that he has been through. The revelations that he had. Here's what Paul says. That I may know him. I count all things as loss. I suffer the loss of all things. And they are rubbish to me. I would give up everything that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Do you do you know him? I didn't ask, do you know about him? I didn't ask if you've heard of him. I didn't ask if you know of him. I didn't ask how many books you've read about him. I'm asking you, do you know him? Do you know Christ? And if your answer is, yes, I know him, I want you to understand that that is not an end. 
That is a beginning that has no end. Are you with me? Your life in Christ is a beginning that has no end. Your knowledge, however you may know Christ today, however you can, in your mind, say, I know him, I want you to understand that is not an end, that is a beginning that has no end. The greatest apostle of all is riding toward the end of his life after revelation upon revelation after doing all that he has done, experiencing all that he has experienced, seeing all that he has seen in the cry of his heart, and I can't communicate it to you, but I want to ask you and I want to challenge you that you would go home and you would read this letter, that you would read this chapter, that you would ask the Spirit of God to give you a revelation of Paul's heart cry when he said that I may know him. That I may know him. Why is that not the cry of the church today? That I may know him. Why are we worried about and chasing about everything under the sun except him? Why is not our heart cry, our life cry that we may Know him. Not so he'll meet our needs. Not so he'll bless us. Not so he'll prosper us and heal us and make our life what we all want it to be. No. No. That's not what it's about. That's not what good news is. It's to know him. It's to know him from the depths of your heart, from the depths of your soul, from the depths of your spirit. It's to know him. And when you've come to whatever measure of knowing him, you will realize that you actually do not even begin to know him. And so your heart will cry again that I may know him. That the spirit of God would continually give to you the revelation of knowing Christ, that you would never come to a place of being satisfied with whatever measure you may know him. To know him and the power of his resurrection. You can't know him and not know the power of his resurrection. Because if you are in him, if Christ is your life, you have already experienced the power of resurrection Whatever's going to happen to your physical body one day, that's just, that's a given. That's gravy. That's the cherry on top. You're going to experience that one day because you've already come to know the power of his resurrection. But do you know that? Do you know that? See, it's not about how well you can technically understand the Bible. It's not about how well you can Take this word and cut it up and divide it and figure this out and figure that out. The point of this word, the point of everything is that you would know him. And if you don't do anything else, if you don't know anything else, if you don't feel capable of doing anything else, you are capable of this. You can know this, that the cry of your heart must be that I may know him. That you would know him. 
And if you will make that the cry of your heart, I promise you the Spirit of God on the inside of you will begin to reveal Christ to you. You will come to know Him. But you'll come to understand that knowing Him is an endless process. It's an eternal process. In the moment you become satisfied with whatever level of knowing Him you've achieved, when you become satisfied with that and you push yourself away from the table and say, I'm full, you've stopped. You've lost your hunger and your thirst for righteousness. And that's a dangerous place to be. Don't do that. If you find that you've lost your hunger and your thirst for righteousness, I would encourage you to get down on your knees and beg God to give you an appetite, a hunger, and a thirsting for Him that you would once again cry out from your heart, even the way Paul the Apostle is crying out here, that you would know Him. And the fellowship of His sufferings. Well, who wants to suffer? we got pastors writing books left and right on how to avoid, how to, how, to, how to bypass suffering. We shouldn't have to suffer in this life, right? No one should die. No one should be in lack. No one should experience a bad day, right? If we just, if we just line everything up, right, we just manipulate God the way, you know, we can manipulate him, then we should never have a bad day, right? Why is the Apostle Paul crying out from the depths of his heart that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship? Do you understand what that word is? Fellowship. Koinonia. The fellowship of his sufferings. Paul's not saying, I I want to read a good book about the sufferings of Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I want to know about your suffering. That's what we want to do. Oh, I want to know all about the suffering of Jesus so I can explain what Jesus went through on the cross. Paul said, forget that. I don't want to know about his suffering. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to suffer. And he sounds like a madman, doesn't he? He does. I'm be, I'll be the first to admit he sounds like a madman. And people who preach those messages today... I'm telling you what, man, people will flock out of the doors and go find a church because they don't want to hear that foolishness. I got enough suffering in my life, Pastor. I got enough going on. I don't, I don't need to be asking God to give me more, more suffering. Listen, I'm going to tell you what. Suffering is a part of this life, whether we like it or not. If you're not suffering, to whatever degree you're not suffering, I'm, t- I'm telling you what, you're in the small minority if you consider most people on planet Earth that are living in suffering beyond what we can even imagine here in America. And we've turned Jesus into this, into this idol, into this lucky charm that's supposed to give me a life free of suffering. And we've got this crazy apostle who's praying from the depths of his heart and his spirit God, that I might know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings, being conformed to your death. Not just suffering, but I want to be conformed to your death. Now, I'm going to stop here. It's kind of a risky place to stop. But here's the deal. If you don't understand who Christ is, If you don't understand what Christ has done for you, 
If you don't understand what the gospel is, if you don't understand what this book is about, we call the Bible, what I just said to you is going to sound crazy. It's not appealing in the least. But if you'll understand, if you'll ask God to give you a revelation by His Spirit of what it means to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Paul prayed that because Paul knew that was the only hope he had. That was the only hope any of us have. If we don't find ourselves ultimately being conformed to his death. We have nothing. We can never be raised with him until we die with him. There is no resurrection if there is no crucifixion. And the crucifixion and the death Jesus died was not a pleasant thing. It was not a happy occasion, though there was much reason to rejoice. There was nothing happy about the crucifixion, though it was the most joyful thing that could possibly happen. Because his death meant his resurrection. Because his death means our death. And his resurrection means our resurrection. His life means our life. Because Jesus is not someone that I bring into my life to make my life better. Jesus is my life or I have none. If Jesus is not the cry of our heart, then we need to refocus and ask God to help us. Find that cry that says that I may know him. Let's all stand. So we're going to begin talking about resurrection next week. Father in heaven. Lord, these are, such, these are such weighty things, but they're not void of joy. Lord, to contemplate our death, Lord, not our physical death, but the end of ourself. To contemplate that is a weighty thing. Physical death is not the end of ourself. To be crucified with Christ, though, is the end of ourself. It's where I stop. And the life of Christ begins. And Father, I just don't see how, if someone like the Apostle Paul, who toward the end of his life, his heart cry is to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of his sufferings, 
to be conformed to his death. God, it just tells me that, Lord, I really don't know anything. But you've not left us without hope, God. This is why you gave to us the Holy Spirit. You did not leave us orphans. You did not leave us without hope. You gave to us your Spirit so that your Spirit in us would reveal Christ to us would reveal and make known to us those things that you have given to us freely in Christ. God, I pray that you would grant to your church repentance. Repentance from chasing after all the things that are meaningless when the most meaningful and the only thing that truly has meaning, which is Christ, Lord, seems to be the very thing that we often run away from the very thing that we're afraid to preach and we're afraid to teach when Christ is the only thing that we have that provides hope for us. God, deliver us from our man-made doctrines and our political correctness and our human nature and our humanity that yearns to have our flesh fed and stroked. Make us hungry and thirsty for your righteousness, God. Make us hungry and thirsty for Christ. God, let us come to a place to understand that there is nothing else that will satisfy us. Only Christ can satisfy. God, make the cry of our heart, the great cry we see in the Scripture from the heart of this man, the Apostle Paul, when he said that I may know him. I pray, Father, that you would reveal the Son to your church. Christ would would be revealed to us here at Christ Fellowship. Make yourself known to us, we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be conformed to your image, that you would be glorified in the Father. Amen.